This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Blockchain Revolution, the acclaimed book by Alex and Don Tapscott, has been stirring interest in elite tech circles in advance of its launch. Steve Wozniak called it mind-blowing in its expansiveness and profundity. There are other great quotes on the dust jacket, but I think an endorsement like that indicates that Blockchain Revolution is bound to be the bestseller that brings an awareness of blockchain technology to the masses. Today, Alex Tapscott speaks about the work. So um, I spent most of my career working in investment banking in, in Toronto and New York, and I wasn't what you'd call a, a super early adopter of Bitcoin. I started hearing about it, I think, like a lot of people did in 2012 and 2013. Um, so I began to sort of poke around, do a little bit of research on it. And right around the same time, actually, my dad, who was running a research program, at the University of Toronto, looking at uh, how technology was enabling new forms of global problem solving, asked me what my view was on it. And I told him it looked pretty interesting, but it probably required a little bit more uh, research to, to figure out the bigger implications. And he basically recruited me to write a paper for the university. Um, first, he wanted to know if Bitcoin was what he called a global solution network, which is to say a network of non-states or state-based institutions that was coming together to solve global problems. So I started with that premise in mind when I was writing the paper. And about a month in, I realized that, you know, Bitcoin wasn't uh, one of these new types of networks. It was actually a new type of general purpose technology, uh, not unlike the internet. And so I began to look at it that way as uh, an important global resource and what that meant for the world of business, um, and of course for you know society at large. And so I got to work on that paper. I ended up actually uh, completing that in the fall of 2014 while I was still working uh, full-time, 80 hours a week in Toronto and New York doing investment banking, um, writing this paper, trading Bitcoin, fooling around on the weekends. And uh, you know, eventually when the paper came out, I had climbed down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and I had completely bought in to um, the possibilities and wonders of this technology. I published that report in the, by, in the University of Toronto Press, and after that I thought that was kind of the end of it. But it turns out it wasn't. Uh, and a couple months later, Don, my dad's publisher, um, came to him, this is Penguin Random House, and said, you know, we just got wind of Alex's report on Bitcoin. This is a really hot topic, Don. Um, do you know anything about it? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, Alex and I have been collaborating on this paper, basically, and I was the one who kind of got him thinking about it um, from a more analytical perspective. And they said, well, do you think there's a book in this idea? And he said, there's only one way to find out. So we got to work developing a proposal for them uh, on blockchain technology and its implications for money, business, and the world. And uh, took it to them, and they loved it. They, they thought it was one of the most exciting proposals they'd seen in a while. And whereas most book proposals go to auction, uh, they bought it outright, gave us an offer we couldn't refuse, and so we got to work. So this would have been February of 2015. So I was uh, still working again full-time, um, traveling back and forth, doing a lot of uh, late 
nights and early mornings while also trying to write a book. And I decided something really had to give. Now, fortunately, around the same time, I was looking to do something entrepreneurial. So I quit my job. I focused my efforts basically full time on the book and uh, basically dug in completely at that point. So for the past 10 months, uh, or I should say for the, the from June until January of 2015 and early 2016, we immersed ourselves completely in this project, interviewed 150 people, spoke to the folks at Consensus, uh, sometimes on a daily basis. Um, also, though, talking to people in government, in the banking sector, civil society, law enforcement, uh, and a number of other areas to really wrap our heads around this big idea. And the conclusion of all that research was that blockchain technology is unequivocally uh, the second coming or the second generation of the digital revolution. The first generation of the digital revolution brought us the Internet of Information. And certainly it's a powerful tool for communicating and collaborating and connects billions of people around the world. But it has a few problems. For one, it's not very good for business. Uh, you see, in order to transact or do business online in a pre-blockchain world, you had to rely on an intermediary or third party to establish trust and to perform all the processing and settlement. Now we could do that on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. Um, it was not very, the first generation of the internet was not very good at securing data. Um, you know, there's no centralized computer system that hasn't proven itself capable of being hacked. And we see that play out day in and day out. And with blockchain, we saw uh, potential to solve that. It's not very good for privacy, the first generation of the internet, um, because huge digital conglomerates <laughs> and other big companies end up um, acquiring all sorts of data about you and end up using it uh, for commercial ends, and you have no control over that. And so we saw these flaws in the first generation of the internet. We saw opportunities to solve it with blockchain. So the, uh, the first generation brought us the internet of information. Uh, this is the internet of value. Uh, a new platform to, you know, reorganize economies, uh, change how we conduct business, and uh, potentially shift, you know, the whole order of human affairs. And we thought that was very exciting. So it seems to me that you made the realization that the future of blockchain technology was not strictly in finance, but in generalization. Yeah, it was very difficult to keep pace with the changes that were going on. Um, you know, every single week something new would happen, right? I mean, to, just to put it into perspective, and this is by, mean, by no means the only uh, metric to use, but I think it's a good one. When we started the research for the book, not a single bank or major financial services firm had publicly announced that they were involved in uh, blockchain technology in any way whatsoever. By six months into the project, basically every single bank had acknowledged the potential importance and now, six months after that, we see major implementations happening across almost every single unit within those different organizations. And so that, I think, speaks to the profound speed um, of this technology's adoption and implementation and the challenge for us. Now, the thing about writing a book about technology is, you know, we hope that 25 years from now, people will read it um, as a, you know, poignant and prescient uh, anticipation of a big technological change. But we don't expect the technology portion to be relevant. We do want this book to be relevant for people uh, in how they think about their businesses and how they think about their lives for at least the next five to ten years. And so we've structured it to think about some of what are the big long-term implications of blockchain. And so going back to your first question, which was about this is about more than financial services. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, in the book, 
we identify seven big transformations, how blockchain technology is going to you know, change the world. So the first one that we look at is, of course, financial services, because I think that's an area that will um, not only profoundly, but also rapidly be changed by this technology. And you're already starting to see that play out uh, as we speak today. Um, but we also looked much deeper than that. So we spent two chapters looking at uh, the institution of the corporation. And, you know, the corporation is an artifact of the industrial age, and it's the basis for modern capitalism. And it's a hugely important um, part of the global economy. And we asked ourselves, well, what, how could the corporation itself be changed by this technology? To your point about sort of uh, generalization, um, for us, you know, the corporation is still, to this day, pretty hierarchical, uh, vertically integrated, somewhat rigid, um, complex. And we asked ourselves, how could blockchain change that? Well, it turns out in really profound ways. So one of the big reasons we have companies to begin with is transaction costs. So long as it's cheaper to do something inside the boundaries of the firm, companies will continue to grow. Well, if you can find a way to lower transaction costs, then companies no longer have to um, put all the capability inside the company. They can start to network and they can start to decentralize and they can start to uh, collaborate across um, you know, borders and, and uh, amongst millions of participants. And it turns out that the biggest transaction costs, which are contracting, bargaining, and the policing of enforcing of contracts, are three things that blockchain can profoundly change through um, smart contract implementation and through decentralization. And so um, we decided to consider in a new blockchain economy what new types of business models might be created. And it turns out there are seven, at least seven, we identified, new business models that could fundamentally change the global economy. And so we spent a whole chapter digging into those seven different types of business models and how they could affect different industries. Um, we then moved on to looking at the opportunity for the Internet of Things. I mean, by some estimates, in a few years, there'll be half a trillion connected devices. Those devices will need a way to um, transact, communicate securely, and coordinate in a decentralized uh, manner, not going through banks or other uh, intermediaries. And the only solution to that is blockchain. In fact, it turns out that the, the internet of everything needs a ledger of everything. And the only way you can do that is with decentralized technology, specifically blockchain. So the internet of things is a huge opportunity. We looked at uh, culture on the blockchain. You know, one of the big issues with uh, the world as it stands today is that creators of content usually don't get the value that they're entitled to. Songwriters and musicians are a great case in point. Right now, technology's actually only made it worse. So instead of just having to pay off uh, labels, producers, promoters, and other intermediaries, you know, big digital conglomerates, you've got streaming services who capture much of the value and leave artists with crumbs. And we see a solution to de, uh, disintermediate many of those players, which actually add very little value to the system by enabling artists to contract and sell their music directly to their fans. And I think Consensus is actually pioneering um, in that field with Ujo Music and their collaboration with uh, Imogen Heap. Uh, we then go on to talk about government and democracy. I mean, these are big institutions, again, that are sort of artifacts of the industrial age, the modern nation state. How can we change the way that citizens interact with governments? How can we change the way that... Um, governments deliver services to, uh, to people. Um, and what role is there for blockchain to play in that? Um, 
I, I could go on here. I've got a couple more if that's all right. So keep going. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, government and democracy. Well, what about um, what about the uh, the prosperity challenges that we face in the world today? You know, three billion people in the world don't have access to financial services. Five and a half billion people have a very tenuous right to the land that they claim that they think they own, because uh, land title registries and a lot of developing countries are in utter shambles and they're managed by corrupt governments. So could we um, put land title registries on the blockchain to give people secure title to their property? That's something that could enable them to take loans against their assets, to uh, start businesses and to become more full participants in the global economy. And, you know, it's odd to think that 75% of the global population in three or four years is going to have a smartphone. But uh, still, many people in the world lack basic financial services. So if we can use blockchain to enable people to store value, to move value, to access credit, to fund and invest, uh, that can have big changes as well. So there are a lot of um, huge opportunities here to make the global economy uh, more prosperous and more fair, particularly for those who have been left out um, during this first wave of, wave of di digital disruption. Um, now, that's not to say that we're taking an overly Pollyannish view of the whole thing. Uh, we do spend an entire chapter looking at all of the 10 things that could go wrong. And there are some big challenges to making blockchain work. Uh, one of them, of course, is scalability. You know, how do we um, scale this technology to work for things like the Internet of Things or for the global financial system. How do we reconcile blockchain with the energy use question? You know, the Bitcoin blockchain, by some estimates, uses as much energy as the island of Iceland. Um, and so how, how does that scale? Does it scale logarithmically? Does it scale exponentially as it becomes larger and more systemically important? How do you prevent criminals from uh, abusing this technology um, for illicit means. And conversely, how do you protect governments from uh, acquiring this technology and using it for to suppress people, to um, monitor citizens, um, to control their behavior? Um, you know, we want to make sure that also that corporations don't seize this technology uh, like they did largely with the first generation of the internet and end up capturing most of the value. So those are a few of the 10 challenges that we address in the in the book um, but we ask ourselves really which is are these reasons that blockchain is a bad idea or are they implementation challenges which is to say they're challenges that can be overcome and we think that they're implementation challenges and so the question is well how do you overcome them what's the solution well we know that governments should not control public blockchains or blockchain technology we know that they shouldn't be owned by companies in fact, we probably know that intergovernmental organizations like, you know, the UN or the World Bank or something uh, probably shouldn't have a role, shouldn't, shouldn't be in control of these kinds of things um, because that's not the way that decentralized systems flourish. But the flip side is, and this gets us into some hot water sometimes, it's not enough to just rely on the code alone to uh, address these substantial problems. You need different stakeholders coming together. You know, you need the private sector, you need the developer community, you need government, you need law enforcement, you need academia, you need the venture capital space to um, come together and develop a multi-stakeholder framework that's not hierarchical, it's meritocratic, that's not um, exclusionary, it's open, and that allows any voice to be heard equally in, in trying to address these big issues. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a that's a brilliant um, that, that's a brilliant rundown. So yeah. this must have been such a journey, and I mean, you talk about going down the rabbit hole. 
I imagine it must have been a massive change for you. Actually, while I was at that firm, I launched our blockchain practice uh, in 2014, just, just really just before I left. And, uh, you know, I, I've always had an interest in, in new technologies. I've helped to finance some of the more successful growth companies in Canada, um, you know, company like Spotify, for example. We manage their IPO process. Or Shopify, sorry, not Spotify. Um, and so I've always been very close, you know, kept my ear close to the ground on new technologies. And nothing really has, you know, the Internet of Things, the sharing economy, autonomous vehicles, machine learning, all of these concepts to me were, were very interesting. But they weren't enough for me to basically stop what I was doing and, you know, completely change my direction. When blockchain technology came along and the more work I did, I realized that this was it. You know, this was the big, um, the big thing that could really, really, really usher in this next era, next era of the digital revolution. And so I, you know, maybe I lost my mind, but I, I believe it. And, uh, and so I decided to pursue it 100%. Steve Wozniak, what did he say? Mind-blowing in its expansiveness and profundity. It's a good quote for the dust jacket. Yeah, it's not bad. Steve's a visionary and uh, getting his endorsement was, uh, you know, a huge vote of confidence for us. We're, we're very pleased with that. Um, you know, the, the praise for the book has been um, overwhelming. And I'll say also a bit surprising, to be honest. Uh, not because we don't think we wrote a good book, but the, the, the amount of, of praise that we received is, is kind of, at least according to our publisher, kind of unheard of for a nonfiction book. We sent out Jack, uh, books, galleys of the books, to, you know, 40 people, hoping that really impossible people difficult people to get a hold of, CEOs, business leaders, uh, visionaries, thought leaders, hoping to get maybe five or six back so we can put them on the jacket. We ended up getting 36 endorsements for the book. Uh, and we had, to, <laughs> we had to choose. So Steve made the back of the book. Good for him. But there are some CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that didn't make the back of the book. They got stuck in the front pages. So <laughs> um, it's it's... It's a sign, I mean, I'd like to think it's a sign that it's a great book, but I also think it's a sign that we're really hitting the zeitgeist on this one and that blockchain's a big deal. Because these CEOs don't have to, they, you know, they don't have to care, but they do. And uh, they've, they've identified this as a big, as a big deal. We've, we've talked about the book. What to you is, uh, is the most interesting thing taking place in the space, the most interesting trend? And how do you see it changing the world as we move forward? Well, I think the most interesting trend is this move to decentralization across more than just uh, money and finance. The idea that this blockchain idea uh, has taken hold and captured the imagination of people in a whole bunch of other industries and how they're looking at it not so much as a tool for improving transactions and reducing friction in their business, but as a way to, to reimagine how their business is organized or how they're, how they're you know, company, whatever you want to call it, is organized in the first place. And so I, when I see things like, you know, trying to solve the uh, music industry, fixing the music industry, I mean, that just lights me up because I have a personal connection to it. My father-in-law is a composer and I've seen his uh, royalty checks declining year over year because the music business um, becomes worse and worse for artists. It has become over time. To know that there's a viable solution to fix that problem, um, you know, means a lot to me. Um, you know, the opportunity to uh, improve, to fundamentally improve or, or recast uh, data privacy 
um, through, you know, federalized identity and, uh, you know, personal control of data to me is such an exciting opportunity. You know, the most important asset class, really, of the modern age, maybe the most important asset class ever, is data. You know, I mean, the data that big digital conglomerates like Google and Facebook own and control allows them to be enormously profitable. Well, the producers of that data are people like me and you, your listeners, and everyone out there. I mean, we're the product. So what if we had more say in how that data was used, and if we could participate directly, if we wanted to share it, um, in realizing some of that value? So those are just a couple of areas that I think are just quite interesting. You know, the, the space as a whole is, is growing and, and splitting and, and moving in different directions. And, you know, different companies are adopting different standards and different companies are saying uh, different stuff. You know, so you've got public blockchain people, you've got private blockchain people, you've got banks, you've got anarchists, you've got libertarians, you've got governments, central banks, law enforcement. Everyone's kind of singing to a different tune. And I think that causes a lot of uh, discord, friction, but it shouldn't because everyone's ultimately moving in the right direction, which is that they're embracing this technology. But what's good for, you know, maybe I'll get in trouble by saying this, but what's good for Ethereum is good for Bitcoin and vice versa. You know, it's too early stage to be picking sides in this fight. I think there's opportunities for, uh, you know, different versions of the protocol to drive and flourish. There's a there's a very clear trend toward automation um, in in uh, the workforce, shall we say, mechanical automation in the workforce, and uh, and something that I've always I've been concerned about is we distribute wealth through labor and capital ownership. So the economy assigns a uh, assigns new wealth creation in a set ratio to or in a, in a dynamic ratio to the holders of capital and the producers of labor. But as we automate that labor, as more and more of the, uh, the functions that that labor force uh, performs are taken over by, the, by capital holders in the form of mechanical automation, say in the example of the transport industry with driverless cars by mm-hmm. Uber, um, do you see a solution uh, using blockchain to that emerging problem? Well, I'll start by saying I don't think that blockchain is a panacea for all the world's problems. And I actually, I don't think that technology alone creates prosperity. It requires human leadership uh, in order to achieve those ends. And the point about job loss and the widening disparity between the rich and the poor are two issues that are central, I think, to public policy discussions and economic discussions in any enlightened society. And I, um, you know, I think that the first generation of the internet has actually done a lot to um, automate a lot of jobs on the lower end of the skills spectrum and that's caused that's caused some issues i also think it's created prosperity in other places um, and i'd say the jury is out at the very least on the internet's net benefit i do think that blockchain technology can actually improve uh, prosperity in a lot of important ways um, the first and most obvious one is for the global unbanked in the world who have no access to the global economy, really. They operate in um, small localized communities um, where their major store of value is usually uh, livestock and where they've got a tenuous right to the land. If you can give those people the tools to fund, invest, borrow, and start a business, that could potentially usher in 
uh, a new halcyon age of entrepreneurship that could help to lift a lot of people out of poverty. Um, but there is a dark side to this, which is that we're in a period of massive automation where robotics and artificial intelligence could potentially replace a large swath of jobs. And I read a, a study recently that said the number one profession in uh, 48 of the 50 states in the U.S. for men uh, without a college education was truck driving, long haul truck driving. Well, I think probably in five years, that's not going to be a viable profession. I think uh, automated truck caravans that operate on autonomous vehicle systems will become commonplace and those people might find themselves out of work. But the good news about blockchain is that whereas most technology, uh, I'd say, cuts jobs at the fringes where the low skill work is happening, blockchain technology um, could potentially cut jobs at the center. So a great example is ride sharing. Today, Uber basically operates with a thousand employees, two million contractors, where most of the value goes to the, either the owners of capital or to the thousand employees that work in the Uber head office. If you can imagine a decentralized ride sharing program that runs in the blockchain that connects uh, contractors directly with fares and cuts out the middlemen, then more value ultimately goes to the drivers of the cars or is passed through the savings to the fares themselves. Uh, that cuts out lawyers, it cuts out uh, programmers and bankers, um, but it leaves the people at the lower end of the spectrum to, to operate freely. So the jury's out. Uh, you know, we believe, we, we say in the book that there are enough signs that this technology could create opportunity for people um, that people should not despair that it's another job killer like other technologies. Given the, uh, the value to the unbanked, how do you see that? Um, are there any specific projects that you see addressing that? And how do you see uh, solutions to that problem emerging? Well, I'd like to, to see more innovation happening at the local level in the uh, places where this technology is needed the most. Right now, I think a lot of the um, most interesting implementations of blockchain to solve things like remittances or to, uh, you know, solve financial inclusion questions are actually um, started in the United States or Canada or Europe or, or wherever. Um, and, you know, I think that's all well and good, but you need adoption and you need people to have education to actually embrace it. And so that's where I think that there's a role um, for, you know, people outside of the private sector, maybe local governments or NGOs or, um, you know, community organizations to help to bring people uh, up the curve to better understand how this technology could change their lives. Now, I don't think that's not to say that I think people in the developing world need, you know, their hands held. I mean, they adopted mobile technology faster than people in Canada, the U.S. or Europe did. Um, and so they've shown themselves remarkably adapted at embracing technology when it uh, when it can change their life. So um, I think that it's a combination, I suppose, where the technology, if it's if the applications and distributed applications that are created are um, it can improve people's lives enough and they'll adopt them. And that could be accelerated if, if uh, um, everybody works together to, to get people up to, up to speed on it. So what's next for you, Alex? Uh, are you, I mean, presumably you're going to tell this book. Yeah, well, the next, the next stage is that we're hitting the road for two months for our 10-city book tour. We've got um, some wonderful sponsors lined up who are helping us to organize some great events and some um, huge markets. So we've got Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Vancouver, 
Calgary, Washington, D.C., Boston, New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, um, all teed up over the next little while. And our hope is that, um, you know, we, we can make this book a bestseller. And uh, not just for our own sake, but for the world's sake, because as it stands, this is the only, you know, book out there on blockchain technology. And I think it's one that helps explain the, the opportunity uh, very well and uh, to a wide audience. So we think that um, anybody, regardless of whether or not you're a business or whether or not you're you know, government or you're just an average human being, you'll want to read this book because it's about the coming changes, um, you know, that will shape your lives for, for years to come. Hey, fantastic! That's uh, that's almost a wrap, but I still want to um, I still want to ask you about your own uh, your own ambitions in the space. Uh, do you, okay. do you, yeah, do you, do you have any any uh, any plans for um, for developing business opportunity yourself? Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I it would be wrong of me to uh, say that this is the big, next big thing and not do anything about it or at least it would be a big missed opportunity. So to that end, uh, I am interested in working uh, with entrepreneurs who are building businesses in this space to help them realize their dreams. I'm an advisory firm right now that's uh, partnered with a number of companies in the space um, to you know, accelerate their growth and put them in a position to win in this, in this you know, new blockchain economy. Uh, longer term, I've got all sorts of big plans, <laughs> many of which aren't fully fleshed out because I've been kind of nose to the grind writing a book for the past year, but I would like to find myself at uh, the intersection of, uh, of innovation in blockchain for years to come. So maybe we'll have to schedule a follow-up podcast to talk about the, the stage two. Well, I'd really love to hear about it. Yeah, because I mean, this space, so ever since I started work at Consensus, it's been amazing to see what people are, uh, what people are working on and how quickly they're developing Stuff that we just couldn't even have dreamed of a couple of years ago. You know, it was just, well, I mean, you could only dream, right? You could only, anything was up for grabs. The, the possible opportunities are just expanding with, with every year. It's incredible. Well, that's right. And I think Consensus is doing great work. And I'm actually looking forward to collaborating with them as part of the next stage of my life. Because I think that um, they're fantastic people who've got great great ideas and uh, are really ahead of the curve a lot of ways on this so it's certainly an exciting time to be alive so hey so where can people find out more about blockchain revolution where can they get themselves a copy of the book and um and where can what what cities are you going to where can they uh where can they find out about your book tour the book is available for pre-order now on amazon the best way to buy it is in massive volume. I'm sure all your friends and family want a copy. So uh, please, please place your bulk purchase today. Um, the the book is uh, available on May 10th. That's when it actually ships from Amazon, and it will be available in bookstores nationwide across the United States and Canada and Europe two weeks shortly thereafter. And we've got a dozen different languages it's being reprinted in already. So um, there'll be lots of blockchain revolution in your life. Um, the best way to learn about the tour and everything else that Don and I are doing is to go to www.blockchain-revolution.com. Actually, if you go there now and uh, buy a copy of the book through the site, you get access to a package of additional infographics and insight uh, that's only available if you pre-order. So I'd encourage people to check that out too. 
Thanks, Alex. I feel it would be unfair not to point out some of the other excellent books on related subjects. On my bookshelf is the Ultimate Bitcoin Business Guide, Kirk Phillips. It's the manual on Bitcoin commerce. Mastering Bitcoin, Andreas Antonopoulos is an easy-to-read technical guide for the blockchain. Blockchain by Melanie Swan offers a good overview of the space, and it's another great one for people who want to dive a little bit deeper. All excellent stocking stuffers. Thanks for listening. As usual, check out the Ether Review at letstalkbitcoin.com and on Twitter at EtherReview.